Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter today, Lord willing. If you were here with us last week, you'll know that in the storyline of Daniel, what has just happened is that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, built a statue, 90 foot tall golden statue, and he commanded all of the leaders in his cabinet to bow before and to worship this statue. Now, there are three Hebrews in the midst. We don't know where Daniel is at this point. He's not mentioned in this particular chapter. But we do know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Hebrews, are standing in the midst of these throngs of people bowing before this idol. Well, of course, as you can imagine, uh, many who are present get a little frustrated by this, and there are some who even maliciously accuse these Jews, and they go to tattle and tell Nebuchadnezzar what's going on. We're going to go ahead and pick up in verse 13. So if you have your Bibles today, follow along in verse 13. I'm going to put them up here after we uh, kind of read through it the first time. I'll read through once, uh, pray again, and then we'll dive back into the text, go about a, a verse at a time. Let's pray. Let's, let's read and then pray. Starting in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace." Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Father, again, as we prepare to take a deeper look into these verses, I pray that you would protect me from error. Uh, that you would help us to see exactly what's going on here and that you would help us to build application to our lives so that today as we leave, we would love you better. We would love you more faithfully. We would honor you more completely. That we'd be a better witness to those around us and that we'd have clearer mind and heart about what passages like this teach and what that means for us today. We need your help and ask for it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of that passage again and just go a little bit at a time. Back to verse 13. Remember, this was right after the Chaldeans, who were amongst those counselors and those officials in the cabinet of King Nebuchadnezzar, they maliciously accused these Jews. It wasn't good intent, but they they went to tell Nebuchadnezzar, there's three guys who are not bowing like the rest of us. Verse 13 says, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Just by this line here, we see the language used. Nebuchadnezzar is not emotionally removed from this situation. It sounds like he's a bit exercised by this lack of compliance from some of his own inner court. At least he brings them in for trial rather than just commanding their death from a distance. And so they do, in fact, come. Verse 14 and 15. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And he first asks them whether or not the charges brought against them are true. Whatever any judge ought to do in a moment like this. But he follows that question with the demand for them to bow and to prove their allegiance to him and to his gods. In other words, he is not curious to hear their reasoning. He doesn't care to hear the reply. He doesn't give them a moment to respond in the telling of the story here. The only answer that he is seeking is a display of compliance. And he concludes this demand with this defiant statement. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar's challenge then is leveled not ultimately at these three men, but at their God. He knows this is a battle between him, his resolve, and the power of the God of these Hebrews. 
I was reminded as I was looking at this passage this last week of a similar statement by another arrogant king, Sennacherib. His story takes place about a century earlier than this one. The Assyrian king Sennacherib comes against Israel. He utterly destroys the northern kingdom and wipes out its most fortified cities, virtually off the map. And then he sets a site on Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And as he comes against it, he begins to hurl insults through many couriers against those who are standing on guard on the walls of Jerusalem. And in fact, he specifically has his people shout these insults and these threats against the Hebrews in the Hebrew language so that they can very clearly hear them. It's even a point at which they go, oh, well, can't you just speak to us in your language and we'll just tell the king what you're saying rather than scare everybody? No, I want everybody to hear these threats. And the threats that are given by Sennacherib and his men are contemptible threats against the God of Israel. This is what it says in just one of those passages that refers to this time in 2 Chronicles 32. And he wrote letters, Sennacherib, wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hands. In these stories, it's the human aggressor who determines to undermine God by attacking his faithful followers. This is so often the case. When a king comes against the people of God, he comes against God himself. And on occasion in history, those coming against the Lord and his people know exactly what it is that they're doing. We also see on the other side that God even responds by identifying with his people in these kinds of moments. Do you remember what Jesus said to Saul of Tarshish, that same Saul who would later be called the Apostle Paul? When he was breathing out threats against the church, he was prepared to go bring more into into, uh, slavery and into imprisonment and even to see them killed. Saul is marching to Damascus, boldly defying God. Jesus shows up, knocks him off to the ground blinds him in the moment. Remember Jesus' words to Saul in Acts chapter 9, his first words. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God so identifies with his people that any attack on the church is an attack on the Lord himself. You and I ought to be very comforted by this. In this story, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this very same fact. In his arrogance, he dares to pick a fight with Almighty God. In other words, he doesn't, God, listen, stop. It's just better for the kingdom. I don't really care your reasoning. It's just, come on, bow because this is good for us all to do this uniformly. His argument isn't, come on, you don't even have a God. There's, there's no one who's watching out for you. Just honor my God, the real God, and then you'll be okay. No, no, no. He knows what he's saying. And that's where he levels his attack. Verses 16 and 17. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Look at that line. 
We have no need to answer you in this matter. They essentially tell him to take a long walk off a short pier, but in a resolved yet oddly respectful way, right? You see that? And in their reply, they answer Nebuchadnezzar's prior question. Which God can save you? They answer, our God. Our God can. He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. The one true God. Now this reply firms up for us an issue that we see in this text we need to just deal with. Many don't even see it as an issue, but let's acknowledge it first and then uncover what's going on. This is the kind of question that's been important for Christians in every time and every nation since the days of Jesus and even before the days of Jesus, like back here prior to his first coming. Here's the question. Are God's people ever permitted to disobey their civil authorities? Because now we've not only seen that they just haven't acted upon the command given to them by their king, but now as they stand before him, they boldly say, we're not even going to answer you in this matter. Now, again, I don't think that needs to be taken in such like a, a, a cutting way. It wasn't an insult kind of way. We don't need to even answer this. We're resolved in what's going to happen. So are God's people ever permitted to disobey their civil authorities as these men do here? Consider this with me. God has given us civil rulers and vested in them genuine authority. And we are required by him to submit to that authority. I'm going to read for you Romans 13, 1 through 2. Wonderful, quick, simple summary of what I'm saying. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Yet here, in this text of Daniel 3, as well as many other places in the Bible, we see faithful God followers resisting their civil authorities. So how can this be? I want to answer with the most obvious answer first. Disobedience is permitted whenever a king commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. Disobedience is permitted whenever a king commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. In fact, we could press that further and say that it is required of a Christian to disobey in such circumstances. So if, try this on in our day, if the highest authority in our land were to demand that we bow to an idol, just as in this story, we would be required by God to disobey that demand. Additionally, if that same highest civil authority in our land were to forbid that you teach your children about Jesus, let's say, you would likewise be required by God to disobey that prohibition. Peter and the apostles answered in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. When there is disparity between what God commands and the lesser authority of a civil leader, 
We must obey the higher authority, God, rather than the lower authority, man. Now, these are not tricky scenarios, are they? I I, I suspect, I'm not trying to convince anyone here of that right now. Christians are largely in agreement with what I just stated there in principle. In fact, in all of my upbringing, I grew up in Christian churches. I've been around many, 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 many Christians throughout my life. I've not yet ever, to my knowledge, met any Christian who would disagree with what I just said. Now, for the record, historically, there are Christians who disagreed with what I've just said. There are those who hold to what we would call the divine right of kings. We saw a particular uh, decent number of these come about in the days of the Reformation, the 1500s, 1600s, who would say that even if the king commands for you to bow down to an idol, you must obey the king, and God will absolve you of your guilt and punish the king instead. I, I think that those believers were very wrong because of passages just like this one. And that which Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So if you were to study this historically, you will find some believers who would disagree with that. You should know that there are more limits on a king's authority than just those two things. That we may resist when he forbids what God demands or demands what God forbids. There's more than just that. And we will get to that. We'll explore that idea more in upcoming chapters where we see that principle more clearly played out. But at least for here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Hebrews, resolved to honor God and thus to defy their governing authorities. There's no way around it. You give us a command, king, we will not comply. They are determined to obey God rather than men, just like those New Testament apostles. And you and I must be ready to do the same. It's hard to imagine a king in our day uh, building a statue like this, maybe, commanding us to come to a singular event where we'd all bow down and worship, maybe. But I want you to just imagine for me, just for a moment, that if in the near future... In our current civil situation, Congress were to approve a bill that was then signed into law by the President of the United States, demanding that all American citizens, including Christians, bow to a golden idol. If that were to happen in our day, would we need to exercise civil disobedience? No. No, we wouldn't. We would not need to, as Americans, to exercise civil disobedience in such a manner. I'll explain why. The Babylonian government, as displayed in this story, was a monarchy. In fact, it was not just a, it was a particular kind of monarchy. It's what we might call an absolute monarchy. The king's word was the law. That's all it came down to. He wasn't bound by a law. He was the law. As Uh, as displayed by the fact that he can just proclaim death for whomever he wants, whenever he wants, proclaim the worship of whomever he wants, whenever he wants, and it is as good as law. Immediately, he is obeyed as a chief absolute monarch. America, however, is a constitutional republic. We do not have a king like they did then. We are that that is comprised of elected representatives who are subject to, to a higher written code of law, which we see summarized as the Constitution, both federal and state, right? 
Interestingly, in the U.S., every president who's ever had to swear into office has done so with his hand on a Bible with the exception of one, John Quincy Adams. Google that. He placed his hand on a book of law. And all of those presidents also concluded their oath with the words, so help me God. As stated in the second article of our Constitution, this is what the president has to proclaim when he has his hand on such Bible, when he has his statement saying that he solemnly swears, so help me God. He has to say these words, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States, and I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Here's what this means and why I'm bringing this up to you today. To say it another way, who is our American emperor? Who is our American king? Our American highest civil authority? The answer is our Constitution. Our president must obey the higher Constitution. Our governors must obey the higher written law. Our highest civil authority under God is not Congress, president, sheriff, governor. It is written, codified law. This is why, if you're an American Christian, you should know that law. You should know the Constitution. You need to know your earthly laws so that you may best honor Christ. If you were to submit to your king, you need to know what your king demands. Our king is the Constitution. We must know what those demands are. Last year, I heard so many ridiculous and foolish statements from Christians regarding our law. It was very disheartening. In fact, you might remember that while many churches in the country were commanded by their local governments to shut down, some did not. Some remained open anyway. In fact, this is what happened very famously to John MacArthur's church in California. We prayed for that church and those people many times here at the time together at church. We weren't under those kinds of local government restrictions. We actually never did have to consider this because in Utah, we never once had to be out of compliance in order to meet the way that we did. But their church in California certainly did. And at that time, many Christian pastors publicly rebuked John MacArthur and his church for rebelling against the government. Some of you know that recently they took it to the court, and the courts agreed with John MacArthur's church and even fined the state $800,000. Did you know this? What does that mean? The point here is that that church, just in this particular situation, that church never disobeyed their civil authorities. They never practiced civil disobedience. They obeyed every bit of the law, and it was proven in the court. Their local governors were the ones who were out of the law, not them. They were the criminals, not the church. And for the record, anyone, any one of those pastors who ever publicly claimed that that church was in rebellion owes them an equally public apology. You and I, if we were commanded tomorrow to bow to an idol, would not even have to exercise civil disobedience because our higher king, the Constitution, says we do not have to. We should be exceptionally grateful for what we have in our country. We should be Christians. I've heard so many Christians, ah, that's not the Bible. Well, no, but the Bible tells us we should obey it. So we should get to know what that means. As a result of God's provision 
In our system of law, you and I enjoy more freedoms and protections than 98% of people who've ever lived, and certainly more than these brothers back in Babylon. They did not have a higher law or constitution to protect them. And so it was required for them by that civil authority. The highest earthly civil authority made a demand, and they were required by that highest civil authority to obey and to worship that king. But they had a higher authority still. Their true and ultimate king. And they said of this true and ultimate king, their God, that he will deliver us. Look at what they say. Look at, how, look at how boldly they say this. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Now, even if this is all that they said and the story continued on, this would be a remarkable story because as we already read in the intro, God saves them out of this moment. This would be incredible. We would, we would still sing the praises of our Lord. We would still point back to these men as worthy of emulating But what they say in the very next verse is startling and perhaps the most remarkable statement yet in this chapter. Look at what they say. This is continuing in their response to the king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God will save us from you. But if he doesn't, you need to know we will never bow before your gods. They accepted the possibility that in order to remain faithful to God, they may have to die. They are prepared to give their lives in order to honor and trust a God that may allow them to be burned alive. God does not promise to remove us from all trials or to remove all burdens from us. It is not the promise that we are given in the Bible. In fact, there's an entire book of the Old Testament prior to these guys devoted to that same idea. It's the story of Job. God is good, and he's just, and he's worthy of our worship and faithful devotion even when we are not rescued from the hour of trial. Our gospel, don't you see, is not that God has promises that he's given to us that we will have worldly prosperity and that we will have removed from us all of the trials and the hours of trial he'll show up and take away the flames. No, God's promise for us is greater than that. The promise of the gospel is that God will rescue every one of his followers from the eternal fires of hell. That's the gospel. These men in this particular story were innocent of the particular charge. They did not deserve to be thrown into that fiery furnace. But you and I, before an all-holy God, absolutely have sinned against his ultimate law. We have not loved him most. We have not loved others more than ourselves. And so because of that, all of us are deserving of the ultimate eternal fires of hell. And that is exactly where all of us should go. God in his infinite goodness and wisdom sent his perfect son to live a life that all of us should have lived so that he would take the burden of our sin to the cross. Our King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, went to the cross to die so that all of us, through belief in him, can have eternal life and be rescued from the ultimate fires of hell. 
And how did God do this? By not saving Jesus from his torturous death. Nothing more terrible has ever been done to someone more innocent than Jesus. Did you know these men were reviled against? They were maliciously accused. That king was gnashing his teeth in furious rage. We'll see it again in another verse. They thought they were going to win by throwing these men in the fire. It would have been easy for the bystanders to think, my goodness, these guys, God, must have abandoned them. Here they are. That's what they said of Jesus, too. Luke tells us the story in his gospel account where Jesus is on the cross, and those who hated Jesus gather around, and they, they mocked him. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, God saves us by not saving his son off the cross. Jesus gave his life to save us, and only if you believe in him can you have eternal life. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation, you need to repent today of your sins and turn in faith to him. And you can have the kind of boldness and courage that these men did. Oh, history is filled. It's It is filled with stories of believers who were not rescued out of the fire. But they were rescued from something worse. From the punishment due to their own sins. And you and I can have that as well if we believe in him. And if you believe in him, you need to have counted the cost and to know that a life devoted to Jesus may demand that you give your life. They say, we will not serve your gods. Not happening. With this final word, this is the final statement, they convey their resolve. In fact, this is the last word attributed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the entirety of sacred scripture. In fact, as soon as we get to the end of this chapter, they disappear. They're gone. We never hear from them again. But that's how they're remembered. Because they're not the hero. The one who will save them is. But by this statement, we will not worship these false gods. By this statement, they preserve their own souls. Jesus said in Matthew 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Long before Jesus would say these words, the truth was there and these men knew it and were willing to die. It is better to die. Than to dishonor our Lord. Don't miss here also the honorable way in which these men disobey their king. If you're prone to rebellion, look to these men for a moment here. We don't see panic. Notice. No hot rage. 
This is not permission for them to curse the king. They don't even try to find a cunning way to get out, a loophole. You may remember how earlier in chapter 1, Daniel and these same three guys sought to remain pure. They didn't want to defile themselves with the king's food. They were concerned about that. And they were dignified and honorable there as well in their response. Even after Daniel resolved to not defile himself, he didn't start a coup. He quietly requested permission to not defile himself. That's what he did. And when that didn't work, he went to yet another lesser magistrate. Didn't work with this guy. He went to the next guy down the chain. Somebody above me hopefully will approve. He appealed to that one, even offered up a test, and we should learn from this. You or your children may, in your lifetimes, perhaps in the very near future, may have to display civil disobedience, and how we will do that will matter. It will matter. This does not mean it's it's wrong to feel anger against a wicked government. No, I, I think you can be righteously angry against that. But we are to watch the way that the disciples in the New Testament, those who suffer in the Old Testament, deal with those moments before their aggressors with honor. God has not placed the responsibility for administering justice against all evil on us. We can't do that. God alone will vindicate himself. It's not for us to throw out those final moments of cursing before we get thrown into the fire. It may be God's will for your life that you disobey civil authorities and then get burned at the stake with honor. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. So the king is clearly not pleased, and while they are maintaining their cool, he does not. He demands that the furnace is heated to a dangerous degree. And he makes clear here, and if anyone had doubted him before, it was not an idle threat. He was not bluffing in what he said about throwing men into this fire. He's about to prove he is every bit as tyrannical as it had seemed. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Have you ever tried to picture this account? Uh, if, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you may, you may go, I've, I know I've, I've read this story before. I've heard about the fiery furnace account. Uh, a, a furnace in this days, we don't know exactly what it would have looked like, but it would have had a, had a lower opening so that they could fe- fuel it with uh, oxygen and with the necessary fuel to make the fire. And then there would be an opening at the top where the smoke would billow out. And apparently, there must have been some kind of mound or way for people to march up on top and throw somebody inside. And that's what happens. These, these mighty men from the army grab hold of these three guys. They don't, even, they don't even take the moment to like strip them down. They don't go to jail for a little while where the king cools off and they, they make a decree and declare it. Right then and there, the execution just happens. Again, we see he's an absolute monarch. Nobody has to go through any other system. Well, if the king says it, we must kill him. 
They bind them and what they're wearing right there and they march them up, to, up the edge of the cauldron and inside. And the heat is radiating so hot that while a person may have previously been able to walk up and look in and, and see the smelting process taking place, these guards couldn't do that because it was so overheated out of the rage of the king. His fury killed those innocent guards. This goes to show you the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. As they marched them up to throw them in, they could not withstand the heat and died. In fact, their death was probably much worse than what would have happened to these men if they had not been supernaturally protected by God. You fall in. The fact that those three men die remind us just how big of a miracle is being worked here. Every witness knows that by all earthly reasoning, these rebels, these Hebrews, should be as good as dead. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. King looks in and sees that there's a fourth man in the fire. You'll see Nebuchadnezzar identifies him here as one whose appearance is like a son of the gods. That term means angel. He looks down and he sees a supernaturally divine being. And that's not as surprising because of the fact that these three aren't dead. They didn't die in the process of falling in. They didn't die from the fall in some way. Whatever's going on in there, they look fine. He even checks. Wait, did, did, I, did I miss? Is there, did we, is there a fourth one I didn't see? No, 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 it's just, just the three. He sees a fourth. I told you before how our Lord identifies with us, how he cares for us, how an attack against these men was an attack against God. And there is God standing in their midst. Now, many scholars have seen that fourth character, that fourth man standing in the midst is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's very, very possible. It'll later be identified. This is an angel. He doesn't know. This is what he sees in there. But God protected them. They were not alone. They were not alone for a moment. They weren't alone when they refused to bow. They weren't alone when they did the kangaroo trial before King Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't alone when they were marched from Jerusalem into captivity. They weren't alone when they resolved to not defile themselves. They've never been alone. But only in the flames of this fire is it revealed to the others that they've never been alone. It's a beautiful thing. And why, why is it? Why is it that a fourth had to be seen in, in the fire? I always ask these kinds of questions. What, what do you do with this? It could have been just the three fall in and they go, whoa, those three are not dead. Pull them out. And the story continues. That could have happened. Why, why does there need to be a fourth? Why did God need to manifest himself visibly before at least the king, if not the others who saw him too? At least the king saw him. Why? I don't know, but here's what I think is the case. I think so that the, uh, the miracle taking place could not be attributed to the three, but the fourth. So they wouldn't go, all of us bow and worship these three mighty magical sorcerers. 
But they would know, no, 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 no. It was the one in the fire. We know this nation was prone to worship idols. How easily could they have worshipped these three? Like I said, they fade out of history. We don't even see them after verse 30. That's it. They're gone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, gone. Those guys almost burned. Those fireproof dudes, gone. Why? Because the story's not about them. It's about the fourth. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Nebuchadnezzar here acknowledges that their God is the Most High God. He stands near enough to shout in and he tells them, come out. I'm a bit of a smart aleck, so I think it would have been like, no, you come in. The king gives this order, and this is an order that they can eagerly obey. The Lord could have had them die right there, couldn't he? This could have been a story of martyrdom, one in which they say, we will die rather than worship this false god, and thrown into the fire and burned alive. And their resolve in the midst of that moment would have been known and seen and maybe written down and celebrated by people who came long after this point. But God chose to rescue them out of the fire, and in so doing, Nebuchadnezzar changes. I, I think a change happens in Nebuchadnezzar that will, will stick. There's, there's, there's growth that has to happen. We'll, we'll discover this in chapter 4. But this observation of this event is very meaningful. Their lives would go on as the Lord would want. He didn't want them to be done right then. He had more for them to do. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So a crowd of witnesses surround them. I think these details are here for a reason. Uh, they do a hasty inspection of the Hebrew men. The fact that their hair and clothes were unsinged they didn't even smell of smoke, you know, that barbecue, fire pit kind of smell that you smell anytime that you're around uh, flames. That was indelible proof to all present that they had witnessed a miracle. No one later is going, well, whatever they were wearing must have protected them, whatever. No, it's, it's evident to all. Only a God could do this. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. As Nebuchadnezzar praises the courage of these men, you'll notice that the honor is given chiefly to God and not just to his servants. It is not, you men are awesome. It is whatever god you serve. Is the blessed God. He even specifically notes that they, you set aside the king's command. I don't know how often Nebuchadnezzar is used to people disobeying him. Probably not very often if this is the kind of thing he punishes people with. 
But here he even praises them for setting aside the king's command. Therefore I make a decree. Here we go again. He <laughs> should be slower to speak, man. This one's better than the others. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. Oh, man. Again, we're reminded that this is an absolute monarchy. He just says it, and they go hurrying off to write this down into law and to deliver it to, to all those who are near. He just makes a statement, and here it's made into law. And what's the law? It's a law against the blasphemy of the one true God. It's quite similar, in fact, to the third commandment given to the Israelites through Moses. It essentially is the third commandment, but with a harsher punishment. The punishment prescribed there is kind of a Nebuchadnezzar's go-to punishment. If you remember back in chapter 2, this is what he said if, they, if, the, if the counselors couldn't tell of his dream. They'll be torn limb from limb. And house made to ruin. <laughs> That's just the, his go-to, his default. When he's feeling ornery, I guess. But here, the king reverses the prior law. We're going to see later uh, in the Persian law, that's not, it's, not, it's not an absolute monarchy. It's a different institution of government. Here, he can make a law and re- reverse it anytime he feels like it. And that's just, here's he is right now. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, they're not mentioned again in this story. I wonder how those Chaldean accusers felt at this point. They're not mentioned in this chapter again after that. But their plan pretty much backfired on them, didn't it? Let's be a reminder. If you are ever faced with a decision to civilly disobey an authority over you, do so in such a way that if God were to supernaturally preserve you, restore you back to that position or promote you even, you could face your enemies with your dignity intact. If anyone in this story should be ashamed after this turn of events, it would not be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is not while they're on the way being marched up into the cauldron, all of a sudden they they start freaking out, forget it, forget it, forget it! Or turn and curse the king, or all those other undignified things they could have done. None of that happened, obviously. The only ones in that place who preserved their dignity were the God followers. Some of you see employer vaccine mandates as a sin issue. And you're even prepared to lose your job, schooling over it. And if that were to happen, you would need to leave in a way that honors God. And if God wills that your termination would be overturned someday, you were to get a call back someday, hey, we realized last week we were wrong, we, we, or we found a loophole for you, can you come back? You'd want to be able to return with your head held high, having honored all involved and not having compromised your Christian witness. There are so many things that we can learn from these faithful men in this story. We're going to get a few more of these kinds of stories as we continue to move on in the book of Daniel. We're going to cover some things about end times. Eschatology is going to be in here. The the march of nations leading up to the time of Christ and beyond. We're going to see some of this. We're going to watch again as Daniel is compelled to disobey a king and how he's to do that. But we are to see in this story that Jesus, that, that the king of kings is the one who is the most imitable. He is the one who receives the praise and the worship. It is blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these men are among the great cloud of witnesses who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13. Those we are to imitate and those we are to emulate. You and I are to see 
when a government says what is right and obey, and when government says what we ought not obey, and be prepared to do so in a civil way, and honor our Lord and our Christian witness, remembering all the while that it is God alone who will vindicate himself and his people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we look back again at this moment in history, we are helped and served well again by it. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this morning from this text, that we will revisit its thoughts, it will revisit its application, and we will be reminded to be honorable and dignifying, to trust in you no matter what. Father, to put our, our hope in you and you alone, that we would repent of sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, that we may be rescued out of the eternal flames that of hell, which we all deserve because of our sinfulness. Father, I pray that what we do in the world will produce worship for you. God, that it would be true of us as Jesus says, that they, the world, may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I pray, Lord, that we would be that kind of witness. Help us as a church, as a body of believers, to, to sort these things out in a way that pleases you, to let your word be our guide, to be grateful for so many of the freedoms that we get to appreciate and have here in our country. Father, help us to lean into your truth, your word more than anything, and prepare us for whatever's coming ahead, and to do so in such a way uh, that we would honor Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray these things in his perfect name. Amen.